Welcome to another episode of Newport Beach in the Rearview Mirror. I'm Bill Lobdell. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? The pay paradise, put up a parking lot. I said, don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? The pay paradise, put up a parking lot. Here's the story in a nutshell. Frank and Fran Robinson, an unassuming couple who moved to Newport Beach in 1962, learned about massive development plans for the upper Newport Bay. Those plans included an extended shoreline, a marina with hundreds of boat slips, homes on its banks, swimming beaches, four parks, businesses, and a water skiing and rowing venue. Even though dredging had already begun, the Robinsons decided to take on the Irvine Company one of the largest land developers in the country, to preserve for the public one of California's largest estuaries. To give you some idea of the size, it's, it's roughly the same amount of acres as Central Park in New York. And after a decade-long battle, David, in the form of Frank and Fran Robinson, beat Goliath, and the back bay was saved. Let's just drive this point home one more time. On one side, you had the Robinsons, new to the area, new to the Irvine Company way of doing business, new to politics, new to zoning and tideland laws, and in a young couple that didn't have a lot of excess money. And the Robinsons chose to take on, perhaps a little naively at first, Orange County's most powerful force, business or otherwise, the Irvine Company, which basically owned Land, as far as you can see from the back bay, had political allies everywhere, sophisticated strategists, deep pockets like no other, and a long-term horizon that allowed them the option to simply outlast opponents such as the Robinsons. And the scales tip even more in the Irvine Company's direction because the project was extremely popular at the time, and it was approved, and it was already underway. On a quick personal note, as editor of the Daily Pilot in the 1990s, I interacted with Frank and Fran Robinson from time to time. As my dad would say, they were salt-of-the-earth people. Humble, friendly, smart, humorous, and in love. I had the same thought each time I had an encounter with them. On the surface, they seemed like the last couple on earth you'd suspect of successfully taking on the Irvine Company. But Fran, mostly through her writing, had a knack for activating the public and therefore the politicians looking for votes in the fight to save the upper Newport Bay, which is also known locally as the Back Bay. And Frank had the mind of an engineer and the tenacity of a pit bull. He was sure the upper Newport Bay belonged to the public and not the Irvine Company, and he just kept digging and digging and digging to find proof of that, which he did eventually. Later in this episode, we're joined by Cassandra Radcliffe, author of the book, Saving the Upper Newport Bay, How Frank and Francis Robinson Fought to Preserve One of California's Last Estuaries. It's a terrific, well-written book and provides so much more details than we can get to in this podcast. I highly recommend it. But before we get to the interview, here are seven things to know about the Robinsons and the Upper Newport Bay. And full disclosure, I lifted some of this material straight from Cassandra's book. 
If we're going to start at the beginning, it should be noted that the Santa Ana River shaped the Upper Newport Bay and its bluffs over the course of tens of thousands of years. That's a fact that I wasn't aware of until recently. And um, of course, the river later changed its course and empties now into the ocean farther north. Second thing to know, prior to the Robinsons' objections, there was unanimous support for turning the Back Bay into a large development. In fact, the bay in its natural state was viewed by everyone at the time as swamplands that would be greatly improved by basically turning it into a mirror of the Lower Bay, or what's more commonly known as Newport Harbor, which is mainly boats and homes. Here's an example of how the Robinsons changed hearts and minds. In the early 1960s, Jack Keating bought a house close to the bay because he heard about the marina plans and he was excited to buy a boat and dock it there. After listening to the Robinsons, he jumped sides and got involved in saving the bay and he ultimately served as president of the Friends of Newport Bay, which is now the Newport Bay Conservancy, for more than 10 years. Third thing to know, in order to develop the Upper Newport Bay, the Irvine Company struck a deal with the County of Orange. We'll give you 450 acres of land on the Irvine Ranch for 157 acres in the Back Bay that the county owned. 450 for 157. The county thought that it was a great deal and went ahead with it. But guess who got the better end of the bargain? A high-end, exclusive development in the Back Bay would yield far more profits than more land inland. Frank Robinson estimated the development would generate $150 to $200 million for the Irvine Company, while the county's new land would produce $5 million. Now, Frank's numbers might be a little biased, but still, $150 million versus $5 million. He never was a hero for this county's shining light But you could always find him standing up for what he thought was right Fourth thing to know. In many ways, the Irvine Company didn't take the Robinsons seriously at first. But some company officials were worried enough that they tried to buy off the couple, offering to sell them two beachfront lots for a bargain price of $7,500 each. But the Irvine Company didn't factor in two things. One, the Robinsons didn't have a spare $15,000. And two, buying private property, which would create a private beach, was exactly the opposite of what the principled couple was trying to do. You like potato? And you like potato? You like tomato? And you like tomato? Potato? Fifth thing to know. The battle for the bay was fought on two fronts, politically and in the courts. The legal fight was extremely complicated, so let's simplify it down to its essence. At issue was whether the Irvine Company County of Orange land swap was legal, and to determine that, this question needed to be answered. 
Were the 157 acres in the back bay swamplands or tidelands? If they were tidelands, then they belonged to the people of California. And the courts eventually ruled that they were tidelands and the land swap was illegal. Cassandra does a nice job fleshing out the details in her book. You've got a friend in me. You've got a friend in me. When the road looks rough ahead and your miles and miles from your nice warm bed. You just remember what you Sixth thing to know. Though they started off alone, the Robinsons had plenty of help in saving the Upper Newport Bay. Two organizations devoted entirely to the bay's preservation were formed. Friends of the Newport Bay, which is now the Newport Bay Conservancy, and the Upper Newport Bay Defense Fund, which became the awkwardly named Orange County Foundation for the Preservation of Public Property. In addition to this, the Robinsons received help from an army of Newport residents, environmentalists from across the country, some politicians, and state officials. Land is your land, land is my land, from California to New York Islands, the Redwood Forest. Seventh and final thing to know, without the Robinsons, Newport Beach would be without its Central Park, and California would be robbed of one of the few major estuaries on the California coast. The Upper Newport Bay is a place where people can come walk, run, bike, hike, kayak, and bird watch. Today, more than 240 species of birds visit the Back Bay. Up to 30,000 birds visit the Upper Newport Bay every day in the winter. 33 species of fish spawn in the bay, and 20 species of mammals make the bay and its banks their home. It's a jewel of California, and it lies or lays, I can never get that right, within the borders of Newport Beach. All right, I want to try a new category for these podcasts called The Casting Couch. Hooray for Hollywood. If Saving Newport Bay was a movie, who would you cast as the main characters? Playing the role of Frank Robinson, I would cast Jason Bateman. It would be similar to his role in Ozark, where he was an accountant who took on the Mafia, Um, not equating the Irvine Company with the Mafia, but a big, powerful organization. And Jason Bateman's character started off as a mild-mannered accountant, and Frank started off as a mild-mannered engineer. For Fran's role, I would cast, I'd go big and cast an age-adjusted Meryl Streep. I think Meryl Streep, would be great playing a character that starts off as a as a housewife who seems almost like a librarian type, no offense to librarians, and is sparked by some injustice to take up arms and not only join the fight, but lead the fight. As for the Irvine Company's William Mason, who was the president of the Irvine Company and sort of the heavy, I would cast John Malkovic. I think John Malkovic has that intensity and that villainous quality. And also, I think William Mason, just everything I, everything I read about him and, say, and, and their development in the Back Bay, he truly believed that this was their land and 
the protests were ridiculous, and the Irvine Company, within the boundaries of the planning and zoning laws, had every right to develop this and didn't have to listen to the residents who were protesting. Okay, we're going to try another new feature, which is, could this story be turned into a six-part Netflix series? My answer is, of course. It's got all the elements. You have a unlikely set of heroes that that are very Clark Kentish until they decide to take on the fight to save the Back Bay. You have a great villain in the Irvine Company, all-powerful land developer, and someone that seemingly could not be defeated. And you have the background, the stakes. You're going to save one of the at least California's largest estuaries, and that makes for high stakes. It makes for drama. It would just make for a great six-part Netflix series. The final new category that we'll introduce in this episode is, would Newport Beach be much different without Frank and Fran Robinson? I would argue there's probably no other pair of people that have changed the course of Newport Beach so dramatically, at least in the last hundred years. If the Irvine Company and the people at the time had their way, we would have a, a marina with boats and beaches and uh, venues for rowing and, and for water skiing. And it would it pretty much mirror what was what is now Newport Harbor, but it would just extend it all the way back to Jamboree Road. But instead, with Frank and Fran Robinson leading the way, we had the best of both worlds. We have a great boat harbor, and we have this world-class estuary that everybody can enjoy now and forever. Now it's time for our interview with Cassandra Radcliffe. She's a writer and editor based in Orange County, California, and began volunteering with the Newport Bay Conservancy after visiting the Back Bay on a birdwatching trip. Her book, Saving the Upper Newport Bay, How Frank and Francis Robinson Fought to Preserve One of California's Last Estuaries, can be found on Amazon and essentially any other place that sells books. Part of the proceeds from those book sales goes to the Newport Bay Conservancy. If you want all proceeds to go to the Newport Bay Conservancy, you can either buy the book in person at the fabulous Muth Interpretive Center on the shores of the Back Bay, or you can go online at newportbay.org and buy it there. Let's go to the interview. Cassandra, thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you, Bill, for having me. Hey, let's start at the beginning. What did the Irvine Company have planned for the Upper Back Bay? So the the Irvine Company was and still is a landowner and real estate developer in Orange County. And they had been working on this idea of a pleasure harbor in the Upper Bay since the early 1940s. So they wanted to build uh, they wanted to build up Upper Newport Bay. They wanted to put in a ski basin, put in docks and fueling stations and buildings along the banks. Um, so that was their plan starting in the, the 1940s. And in the wow. 50s, they submitted a plan to the Orange County Board of Supervisors to develop 74% of the bay for these residential and commercial purposes. And they would be the ones to develop the bay. It would look a lot like the other parts of the harbor, right? With uh... Exactly. It'd be built up like the lower bay is. Tell me how far along were those plans? How close were they to, I guess, breaking ground on, on this project? So it was actually approved by the Orange County Board of Supervisors, and they did break ground. They started to um, oh. put up 
private property signs all around the bay. And in 1963, dredging began. So they started excavation. At the time, the Irvine Company was pretty much all powerful, right? They, they owned 20% of the land in Orange County. They didn't own the Board of Supervisors, but they're very influential, right? Mm-hmm. So they didn't have a lot of opposition. Right. And the, the Orange County Board of Supervisors, they did want this to be built up uh, as a marina. You know, it's going to, a bunch of people are going to come spend money there and visit. And everybody wanted this deal to go through. Even the residents at the time did want it to be built up and people were excited about it. Yeah. Times have changed, huh? Mm-hmm. And let's talk about the heroes of the story. A couple named Frank and Fran Robinson. Take me back to the moment they got involved and why they got involved. So Frank and Francis Robinson moved to Orange County in 1962 from Los Angeles. And Frank was uh, an aerospace engineer. He worked in Anaheim at a company called Autonetics. And Francis was a housewife. And they lived a couple blocks away from the bay. They had two kids. And really, it was Francis who wanted to live by the water. It was like her favorite thing as a kid was to go to the beach and play in the water. So she wanted that for her children. So they moved in in 1962. And then in the summer of 1963, that's when um, her son, Jay, he rode his bike down to the beach and to North Star Beach. And he found that private property sign and came home and said, I can't play at the beach anymore if it's private property. So that's kind of what spurred Frank and Francis to fight the development was that they wanted this place for their kids and for other kids to be able to grow up and play in the water. The sign saying private property that was new all of a sudden. Yeah, it just popped up overnight. And posted by the Irvine Company because they were exactly. developing it. And North Star Beach is, for people that don't know, it's where the Newport Aquatic Center is. So they decided to fight it. What were, what were Frank and Fran's first steps to do that? Well, Frances, she did what she did best, which was write. So she wrote this whole letter. And if you get the book, Saving Upper Newport Bay, we actually put the entire letter in there just to kind of give an example of, and she would do this throughout the years, write letters to um, letters to the editor or letters to local politicians. And she just could make a really good argument so she could explain what the deal was and and why you know it shouldn't go through and it, it just is really well done. So we put that first letter that she wrote to the to I think it was the Daily Pilot and also the Board of Supervisors got a copy. So that was the first thing she did. And then both Frank and Francis uh, went around the neighborhood and they got 200 signatures on a petition to stop the development. How long did they do this sort of a solo act and in, in uh when did they get some allies in their corner? So basically, the signs went up in the summer. They started getting petitions signed in the neighborhood. And then in December, there was a Newport Beach City Council meeting. And uh, a lot of people were writing in to the city council, too, to say, you know, this not only on, on the side, you know, on the side of the bay, I think it's the, is it the north side? Well, they, they would call it the uh, west side. The side where Frank and Francis Robinson lived, they wanted access to the beach. Now, the people on the other side, they were writing in complaining about Back Bay Drive. It was going to be, it was going to still be there, but they were going to kind of reroute some sections and, you know, have it at a higher elevation and they were going to build right on the banks there. So we had both sides of the bay kind of going, no, we don't like this. We don't like this about the plan. That was in December of 1963, where the, they had the city council meeting and the city council unanimously opposed the plan. So oh, wow. right after that, that's when 
all work kind of stopped in the Bay because there was all this opposition all of a sudden, and they had to figure out what are we going to do? So it's at this point that Frank and Francis and a few very uh, small group of people started doing a lot of research and figuring out, you know, legally, how can we fight this? Were the Robinsons taken seriously at first by the Irvine Company? I don't think that they were. The Irvine Company and the newspapers and local politicians, I don't think anybody really took them seriously at first. But they were kind of brushed off by everybody saying, oh, you know, they they just want to protect their view. And they, they didn't have a view from their home. They just they lived a couple blocks away. They didn't want the land for themselves. There was no like really selfish motive. They just wanted to save it for their children. So I think at first they weren't taken seriously. But then as time went on, especially the Irvine companies did see them as a threat that they were these smart people who were activating the community, really getting people involved and and starting to fight. So no, at first they weren't taken seriously, but eventually they became a real force. When the plant stopped, that was the Irvine company that stopped it and said, we got to figure out how to work with these guys. Yeah, it was basically that the city council opposed the plan. They said, you can't do this because, and their sticking point was Back Bay Drive. Again, no one wanted it to completely stop. They just wanted a better plan. And it turns out that the Board of Supervisors approved the first plan that they ever saw. So they just were like, hey, you know, let's look at this again and kind of revise it and make it better. So they just stopped all work until they could get an approved plan that everybody was happy with. Take us through between then at a high level, between that point where they took a pause and what were the steps that happened that saved the bay? So they started doing research at this point because they had some time. And so I, I had mentioned how Frances Robinson was really good at writing. So that was her strength. And then Frank Robinson's strength was looking at data and kind of like analyzing things. So he got together a bunch of old maps and tax records and historical photographs. And, and so they kind of worked together to figure out a legal reason why they could prevent the development. And I think by this point, they started to understand that it actually shouldn't be built up at all. And I think that was planted kind of early on, but it wasn't until later that they, they really opposed completely any development. Okay. So, so you said that the Newport Beach City Council turned around pretty quickly. Did it take the Board of Supervisors? Or eventually they came to be against this development, right? Yeah. Actually, everybody <laughs> in the end was against right. development, even the Irvine Company. So it took a while to get new members on the board of supervisors and each one of them, you know, and, and even as time passed, kind of everybody learned more about the environment and just kind of started opposing it. And especially the board of supervisors because they could be voted in. And, mm-hmm. you know, in the seventies, the Robinsons started to have a lot of sway in, in the local voters. So right. that's kind of why the board of supervisors eventually changed their mind. How did the environmental movement that was gaining steam in the 60s and early 70s, how did that factor in? That was a huge deal because in 1969, you have the Santa Barbara oil spill. And that kind of shocked people seeing all those images on television and all the birds covered by oil. And um, we have the first Earth Day and, you know, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, that book kind of, you know, really hit a nerve with everybody. So it just kind of all came to a head right at the same time. So Newport Beach was really lucky in the timing of it 
that everybody's minds were starting to shift a little bit. Opinion mm-hmm. was shifting towards saving things as a park, you know, or saving places as open space and not building everything up. It was really the time. What was the point that the Irvine Company raised their their arms and said, we give up? The court case went to the appeals court. And in 1973, they came back and said, no, this land swap is unconstitutional under the California state constitution. And at, at that point, the Irvine Company was like, okay, nobody is for building this. We don't want to fight this anymore. Basically, we're just going to let it go. And can you give me a sense of how how hard the Irvine Company fought this? I mean, this is a gigantic development. It would be worth probably hundreds of millions of dollars to them. How hard did they fight it when they thought they still had a chance to win? I think they fought it really hard. And it things began to change in the early 1970s when the Irvine Company president, William Mason, died. And his successor was Raymond Watson. And this young blood coming in kind of helped this change. I think it was just kind of the old mentality versus the new mentality. Again, it's just the timing of everything. In the early late 60s and early 70s, just everybody's minds were changing. I think he understood that you want the public to be on your side as well. Cassandra, when the Irvine Company abandoned the project, they turned around and sold the land to the state for $3.84 million in 1975. And I've heard Frank Robinson wasn't too happy about that. Frank, for the rest of his life, held this grudge that he, (laughs) you know, according to all the maps he found, they uh, just like in the beginning, they didn't have the right to to swap this land. The Irvine Company never should have been paid to get the land back. So Frank was very upset about that. But I think that was that was one of the things he just had to let go. And last question for you. So this is one of Newport's maybe most inspiring David versus Goliath stories. And then the result is this preservation of this amazing estuary. What are your thoughts on that? Like when you, when you, I mean, obviously you're thought enough of it to write a book. So what are your thoughts on that? I just think the whole time that I was writing it and even now and the reactions that people give to me after they've read it, it is very inspiring. It's a really interesting story just the the time of it, you know, how how it all started with them and how they went to this this court battle and then how they won, you know, it's just such a a huge inspiring story that we can all connect to because we've been there, you know, a lot of most of the people who've read the book have been to Upper Newport Bay. Looking at it in today's world, it's like all the things that are happening in the world, especially things like climate change and race relations in this country, it's things that feel very overwhelming to an individual and you feel very hopeless. You want to make a positive difference and and you can just get bogged down by a lot of this stuff. But it's comforting to see that these two regular people who were just living in the suburbs, you know, living their lives could inspire so many other people and get this community of thousands of people to affect this big change. It's very inspiring. Cassandra, that was great. Super interesting. And I, I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. All right. Thank you for having me. Remember, if you want to buy her book, Saving Upper Newport Bay, How Frank and Francis Robinson Fought to Preserve One of California's Last Estuaries, go to newportbay.org and you can buy it online, or go to the Muth Interpretive Center in the Back Bay and buy it in person. And that's right on University Drive across from the YMCA there. If you go either one of those routes, all proceeds go to that organization. Thanks for getting into this podcast time machine with me and traveling back to the 1960s and 70s 
to see how Upper Newport Bay was saved. We'll see you next time.